Before there was Bear, the Jazz's mascot was a man. I always never forgot that I was a salesman. I was always selling tickets. Frank Layden used smoke and mirrors to promote a franchise that wasn't very good. The team's best year ended with an injury. The star couldn't play anymore. And when he was benched, the crowd booed. There's no way it could last. And yet... Frank Layden is the architect of jazz basketball. He'd be funny, and then yeah, you'd kind of hope for a funny moment, and then he would be so entirely direct, so entirely matter of fact, this is just the way we're doing it. This is how we do it. It took all negotiation out of it, all humor out of it, and then you're prepared to go. He knew, you knew exactly what he wanted, when he wanted it, and he adapted himself to bring the best out of us at whatever stage we were in our careers or whatever stage we were as a team. He was a dynamo. He was passionate, totally involved, dedicated, loved the team, loved the people, and did everything in his power to bring credibility to the Utah Jazz. Through the magic of an exceptional salesman who also happened to be an excellent coach, the Jazz survived their rocky start. They became the team with heart. I'm JP Chunga, and this is The Note, the history of the jazz, presented by Delta. Professional basketball existed in Utah before the jazz. The ABA relocated to Salt Lake City in 1970, Successful enough to make the finals, but not enough to overcome being the other team in Los Angeles. The Lakers owned the city. So owner Bill Daniels looked elsewhere and hoped for a merger. What he found was a basketball-crazy market. We had great crowds. Great crowds. Former Stars guard Ron Boone. Uh, the fact that the Utah Stars, that first year that they arrived here, won the ABA championship, you know, now... Uh, everyone being introduced to professional basketball, all of a sudden they fell in love with it. Spoiler alert. But yeah, that team was pretty good. Led by Zelmo Beatty and Willie Wise, the Stars beat the Kentucky Colonels in seven games to take home the championship. 100 South became Stars Avenue. The Salt Palace was filled to capacity. The team made the division finals in back-to-back -back seasons. Ron Boone became a fan favorite, and then they left. Bill Daniels drained his bank account on a doomed run for Colorado governor. By December of 1975, the team couldn't make payroll. Players pushed carts full of merch out of the home arena. The stars were gone. Into the void, college basketball dominated the state. The Utes, Cougars, Wildcats, and Aggies all made the NCAA tournament in the decade. Then there was a college star in Provo, a Eugene, Oregon native named Danny Ainge. I think that there was a, a lot of awareness in basketball, in the basketball world. Um, you know, players like myself or college players, we were aware of what was going on in the NBA. Um, the NBA was not as big as college basketball in Utah, and nor was the NBA as big as professional baseball at that time. Um, 
and but it was it was growing and and you know like i think everybody was excited about the idea of an nba team in the state of utah the success set the seeds for the biggest moment in the nba's history in 1974 the university of utah was awarded the 1979 final four and at that point the league needed stars and two box office guarantees were about to meet in the ncaa championship Larry Bird of Indiana State and Magic Johnson of Michigan State played in a final that destroyed every viewership number in the history of the game. The 24.1 rating is still the highest ever for college hoops. Ainge was in attendance for that magical moment. A good friend of mine that bought a ticket and we went together and I, I wasn't planning on going and he got me a ticket and we went and we had a blast. I mean, Bird, Magic, um, you know, at that time, were just so great, such great players, good personalities. On top of that, that they uh, they changed the NBA when they came. I mean, a lot of it had to do with that game in '79. But when they came to the to the league, uh, Magic the next year, and Larry a year or two after, like they changed the whole dynamic of the NBA. That fall, professional basketball arrived too. Sam Battistone's relocation landed in Utah. Its leadership. That was another story. So I used to go over to New Orleans. Frank Layden. Because I could fly over there after practice, see a game of the team that was coming in to play us two nights later. And uh, so I'd go over there. I could fly over like 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and I could fly back after the game, be home in bed by 12, by midnight. And I did that often. I did it so much, I started to meet the people there and the Superdome and people that were associated with the team. And, uh, you know, so they got to So one day, one guy said to me, one of the lawyers, he said, are you interested in, in changing? He said, maybe, maybe coming here. So I said, why, what's going on? He says, well, I'll keep it under your hat. He says, but there's gonna be a, over, a complete overhaul. Here, they're firing the general manager, they're firing the, uh, uh, the coach, they're doing everything, right? And so I said, well, let me think about it, yeah. So I said, yeah, I'll be interested. Layden was offered a job, but it came down to which one he picked. What do you want to do? You want to be general manager or you want to be coach? I said, I want to be both. And I told him what Red Auerbach told me. You want to have success in the pros, you better be the guy that signs the checks. He said, the players will have respect for you, and they'll know, you know. And he said, if you look at Vince Lombardi, him, Red Auerbach, uh, Whitey Herzog, they all were total control freaks, you know. So anyway, I said, yeah, well, I'd like to do both. Well, you can't do both. They don't want to do it. So I said, well, I looked at our team, and this team is awful. I said, you could hire Johnny Wooden and would make any difference. You're not going to win with these guys. So I said, this is going to take an overhaul and it's going to take some patience. I said, so I'll take the job as general manager. I said, because uh, it's too, too, too nerve-wracking to be a coach here. And, uh, and I took over as general manager, so I didn't know what the hell I was doing because I had never done much of that before. I'd been athletic director at Niagara while I was coaching, and I'd been uh, athletic director also at Dowling College. But this was... This was a lot, there was a lot to be doing and, and I didn't have the business 
a quorum to, to do the things that had to be done outside. We needed to sell advertising. We needed to, uh, we had some help from the league with the program because the league ran their own program for every team and, uh, and uh, some other things. But, you know, I really didn't know where to start and I was trying to, you know, get players and scout and do everything else. Frank hired Tom Nisalki, the last head coach of the Utah Stars, to lead the Jazz. Players-wise, Layden opted for a clean break. Only two, Pete Maravich and Jim Harding, suited up in 78 and 79 for the franchise. Maravich was at the end of his career. Pete couldn't play, and Tom just sat him on the bench, and it was people yelling, we want Maravich, we want Maravich. So it became a real bone of contention, and um, Sam Battistone and I got together, and we talked over and I said, where, where do you think he would go? So I called up Red Auerbach, who knew Pete and knew his dad real well, because he had been a lot of clinics with him and camps and stuff like that. And he loved Pete. So I said, look, would you, uh, do you want Pete Maravich? He said, he can't play, can he? I said, no. He said he can he can put him out there on the floor. But I said, no, his knee is shot. It's like a noodle, and that's the end. I said, however, he loves to play. He loves to practice. He doesn't say boo. The, the other players will like him. And besides, I said, we want, Mr. Battistone and myself, we want to get him a ring before he's done. So he said, okay, let's make a deal. So it's a handshake. We'll take him. We'll take his salary, and uh, and we'll uh, we'll go from there. So we we talked to Pete and said, "Look, Pete, you want to quit? You get paid. You want to give it a try?" He says, "I think I'll be better next year in spring. Go to training camp." I said, "Okay." I said, "Then then we have a chance to trade you." I said, "To uh, give you to the Celtics." Red Outback likes you, he wants you. I said, and uh, like, and I can remember, I was up in his house. He was up here in North Salt Lake, that's where he lived. And we shook hands. And I remember the trainer taking his keys and we'll move all your stuff. Tell us when you got a place to live and we'll, we'll, we'll go. The next year he went to training camp. He, he, uh, he, he just couldn't get through the training camp. And, and they treated him with kid gloves like we did here, but and maybe now they'd probably have, they'd probably be able to fix that knee, you know. And so he just went home. So I called him up, and I ta I said to to uh, to Sam, I want to hire Pete in some capacity. I'd like to have him as an assistant coach. I say he can work with our guards, and I say he loves the game, and and uh, I think we owe it to him. So he says, Yeah, let's do it. So I called him up, and he says, No. He says, I'm happy. I'm out of there. He said, if I can't play anymore, he said, I don't want to travel and be around. He said, I, I, he said I'm not going to do many camps or anything. He says, it's over and it's over, and I had a good run. But out of the player transactions, Layden found one of the best ever to put on a Jazz uniform. Frank set Spencer Haywood to the Lakers for Adrian Dantley, a player he tracked since high school. I had gotten traded from... Uh... My, my my rookie year, Buffalo, 
Rookie of the Year. Got traded to Indiana. I got traded in Indiana. Coach is saying, Adrian, you're not going to be here long. I'm going to trade you to L.A. Then I got traded to Utah. Spencer Haywood said he wouldn't come here. I talked to him. He said, I ain't playing out there. Get out of here. He said, I'll sit out of here. So anyway, I talked to his agent and everything else. And then I got a call from uh, Charming Bill Sherman. And he called me up and he says, I'm having a hell of a time trying to sign Dan. His agent's killing us. He said, I know you have a relationship with him. So anyway, I called him. I called his agent, called him. He says, he'll play at, at the, in that market. Of course, one of the things he knew that yeah, he'd get the ball and he could shoot it every time he got it, you know, which he did do. Dantley scored in unique ways. At 6'5", he never towered over anyone in the post, but that was his office. AD used herky-jerky pump fakes and pivots to draw fouls, to score points. I always tell people all the time, I got fouled because I was All-American. Everybody went block All-American shot in high school. So I would give them the pump fake, they would go for it. Sometimes I would let them block the shot because I knew I was going to get them the next two or three possessions and they'd be on the bench. Because I used to always tell them, hey, they get in the foul trouble. I say, all right, go over there and be assistant coach. But ball fake, pump fake, there's always a defensive player going to bite, bite for it. There are certain ways you can score points. I mean, you just don't need to have a ball all the time. You, you know, you can, you get your, now you got a lot of players scoring off in transition. You know, you can get your, Three buckets off the transition. You know, you can get two or three offensive rebounds. You know, that's 12 points right there. And then you're in the offense. You know, you get a couple buckets. Like I always tell people all the time, it's easy. To, all you got to do is score six points a quarter. You know, you got 25 points, you know. That's all you got to do is get six points in 12 minutes. Shouldn't be hard to do, you know, but it can be hard for some players, I guess. Dantley scored, but the team was still one of the worst in the league, 24-58 and 58 in its first year. They earned the second pick in the draft, and this is where Layden shined. Daryl Griffith, Mark Eaton, Thurl Bailey, all developed and found by Frank. First up, Griffith, still the highest pick in jazz history, Dr. Duncan Stein brought a reputation with him, a championship with Louisville, a shoe contract, and one of the slickest posters of the 80s. But that could have been elsewhere. Let Daryl tell you. Red Arback and my agent Bob Wolf were real close friends. And so Red Arback that year was, uh, had two on his draft board, he needed a big man and a guard. And he's orchestrated uh, a trade to get Joe Barry Curl uh, and, and, uh, to, to get Robert Parrish and replace the Joe Barry Curl in the draft pick. So they got their big men in Parrish, and they were thinking Utah was going to take McHale. And if they did, then I was at number three, so he had his had his wish, big man to guard. And then uh, but Utah chose me, and the uh, rest is history. Griffith could shoot and elevate. He brought athleticism. Oh, well, I remember Darrell when he was at Louisville. I saw him play. He came to D.C., played in uh, the All-Star, All-American Classic. Uh, great shooter. Too bad they didn't have, well, he came in and we were shooting threes, but we weren't shooting threes like they are now. If, if he was shooting threes like the players are now, he would he would definitely average 25 easy, you know, because 
he shot threes within the structure of the offense. Guys that they come down on the transition, jack up a three, no problem. If you did that back then when we play, you'd be on the bench, no matter how great a shooter you were, you know. So uh, too bad he didn't come along now as opposed to back then. Mark Eaton, nobody knew what you were going to get. He's a fourth-round pick back when the draft was unnecessarily long. Eaton didn't even play at UCLA. He had two years of junior college experience and opted to work as an auto mechanic before coming back to hoops. It was on a scouting trip with his son, Scott, that convinced Frank. We, we hadn't met him in person, so we're, we're sitting in that gym. The summer league is going on, and uh, all of a sudden, Mark comes through the door. Now, the, the average uh, door jam is six foot seven. So Mark comes through and the whole gym turns towards him uh, because he's such a, you know, such a big guy, both, you know, wide and, and tall. And uh, my dad leans over to me and says, oh God, I hope that's him. Well, his first year he was fat. And each year he started getting off the fat, started lifting weights, started building his body up, building his endurance up. Because his first year there, it was, he was, he was, it was, it was kind of tough for him. Each year, he started getting better and better. Coach Phil Johnson would work on him on his hook shot. I know when I played with him, if I penetrated, it was very easy, just screen and roll, just throw it up at the rim, and he could, uh, you know, just lay it in. Once I got here and started going through the drills and the running, I was like, wow, I'm not even close to where I need to be. And then, then the first few games when I'm playing against guys like Bob Lanier and Artis Gilmore and players like that, even in the exhibition season, I was like, wow, these guys are really strong. I mean, they can push me around anywhere I want to go. And so I decided right then that I needed to get stronger. And I worked with some guys uh, with some weight weight workouts to do and squats and bench and clean and all those, that kind of stuff to get myself stronger because I knew the only way I was gonna survive is I was able to push people around underneath the basket and I needed a lot more muscle mass to do that. When we drafted him, he anchored the Jazz and he, he anchored us defensively, but he also made us a, a, a legitimate uh, team. And then as we, we drafted from then on, it, it, it all fit together. But he was, he was the guy that, that kept us um, really uh, in, in, a, in a winning way. Eaton was a bona fide project. Thurl Bailey wasn't. Big T, well, he comes just as the team is ready to crest in 84. But the first years were filled with misery. Utah didn't win 30 in a season until 1983. Frank replaced Tom Nisalki as the head coach. That move debuted a different style. Ricky Green lived on the periphery of the NBA. He spent his time with the Warriors and Pistons, but before the Jazz, Ricky played in the CBA, a notch equivalent to the modern G League. He's a can't-go-back all-star that became the franchise's leader in assists and steals by the time he left. Frank Layden was out scouting, you know, the CBA, and he came to a game, and after the game, he pulled me to the side. He said, uh, he asked me, who's my agent? And I said, my agent was George Andrews. He said, tell him I would be giving him a call in the morning. And he also 
asked for a ride back to his hotel room because, you know, up in Billings, Montana, it's not a lot of, you know, transportation, I guess, you know, so, you know, so. But anyway, drove him back to the hotel and he told me that uh, he had to get in touch with me. A couple of days later, I was on the plane, myself and a guy named Jeff Wilkins that played with me there. As, and as we got on the plane, on the way to Utah, I looked at Jeff, my buddy, and said, I'm not coming back here. Jazz broadcaster Hot Rod Hundley nicknamed Green the fastest of them all. For obvious reasons, he was staged with a sports car in a promotional poster. I used to sit with Hot Rod on the bus, and he used to give me pointers, you know, about being a point guard since I think he was a point guard. And we used to sit on the bus, he used to tell me things like, if you want to get a three-point play on a break, you know, get it to Adrian Daly on the wing. He said, and with Griffin, you know, you know, you see him camp out of the three, you know, always fake and then hit left, you know. I got a, uh, I got a poster, huh, with me standing by a race car with a, with a helmet, with a race car, and they got the fastest of them all, and Rod Huntley was the man. Green looked like a pro under Nasalki but he was free to move once Frank took the job. Layden played to his point guard's strengths. I remember this vividly. He came in the locker room. I think uh, he took over his coach. He came in the locker room and he said, I, I don't remember what he was playing. I, I want to say Kansas City. But anyway, he said, we're not going to run any plays today. And myself, Dale Griffin, Adrian Dabney, all we all looked at each other like, no plays. <laughs> So he said we're just going to run and gun and score points. So he put in a couple of, you know, set plays, you know, in case we stall out, a couple of out-of-bound plays, and uh, threw the ball out there and said, let's go for it. And I think we ended up winning, winning that game. But anyway, that began, you know, the Jazz running and being a more upbeat team. Frank believed in transition, and that's what he did. He, he gave the freedom. He gave players the freedom to, you know, go up and down the court, gave them freedom, take the shot, shoot it with confidence. He was a motivator for, for a lot of players. They were starting to turn the corner, but off the court, things couldn't be more precarious. Sam Battistone was losing money. The team could barely pay its bills. In 1982, the Jazz drafted Dominique Wilkins with the third overall pick. Wilkins didn't want to play in Utah, and candidly, Battistone needed the cash. The Hawks sent John Drew, Freeman Williams, and $1 million to keep the organization afloat. To be honest with you, I didn't think it, it would happen. I didn't think they would make it. And I said to Barbara, she said to me, what's it going to be like out there? We're from Brooklyn, New York. We're going to be as west as west you can be. And... Uh, you know, and, and the, the weather and everything else. Uh, I said, don't worry. Three, four years tops. They'll move this team down to Heim or something. This is just a WF spot. When I first got here, one of the first conversations I had was with Daryl Griffith. Daryl Griffith and I had something in common. We're both champions, national champions in college, him at Louisville, me at NC State. And the first thing he said to me was, young fella, he said, I need to, uh, you know, I need to prepare you because I know 
we both are used to winning. You just came off a national championship. He said, it's going to be a rough road here. We haven't won in a while. Matter of fact, we haven't really ever won. Um, so he wanted to prepare me for kind of a new journey with this team that wouldn't be as exciting as the one I just came off of in college. Yes. Yes, and we did that by calling me my dollar fifty to get in. Open, I used to tell the ushers, open the doors up after the half. Let anybody wants to wander in, let them wander in. You know, get them in there, they'll see it, they'll like it, and maybe they'll come back. You know, bring in the groups. The uh, junior jazz. We had 110,000. 110,000 junior jazz kids in five states. They all got tickets to a game. So sooner or later they come. When they came, they brought their mother and father, someone else with them. And uh, so, you know, what to me was like the old Brooklyn Knothole gang, you know. Get the kids in, they'll grow up fans. You can fool them once in a while, you know, and you can have gimmicks. And, you know, uh, we, had the, we had the chicken. You know, we brought the chicken into, and the chicken would bring people into the building. You can't fool them all the time. And you can have, you can have Pete Maravich, who after a while you realize, you know what, Pete was great. Oh my goodness, you know. But Pete Maravich used to put a lot of people in other people's places. In our place, once they saw him a few times, <laughs> that was it, yeah. It would be Pete 35 and Jazz, you know, 80 to the other team 110. So you got to win. It turned dire the next season. Attendance ranked near the bottom half of the league. Battistone eyed other markets. In fact, the Jazz played 11 home games in Las Vegas during the 83-84 campaign. The newly opened Thomas and Mack Center proved sterile but memorable. At the time, we needed we needed the economics of of the sport to help us out, and we thought that going to Las Vegas would would you know help us out economically. It was it was a disaster. First thing that comes off the top of my mind when you talk about the games and being significant is the fact that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar broke the scoring record there with a hook shot over Mark Eaton. Uh, I was on the floor at the time, and even though we were the opponent, it was we knew it was history. You know, unfortunately, it was against us, but. Fortunately, it was against us, I guess I could say as well, because we were part of that history. At the time he was getting ready to throw the hook, I remember trying to dig down and get, you know, try to distract it a little bit, but you know, Kareem, me, you know. <laughs> I was just a little buzz then. But anyway, it was a, he broke the record. It was, I just happened to be there, you know. It, was, it, was, I, it wasn't fun that he broke it on us, but it's just experience being there when he broke the record. If we played another team, it was just for them to come there to watch a game. They weren't coming in like, you know, cheering for the, for the Jazz. But uh, so that made it even harder for us, I felt. Made it easier for the visiting team because you didn't have that crowd that we would have if he was playing in Utah. In 1983, the Jazz missed the playoffs for their ninth straight season, a then NBA record for futility. An expanded postseason format to eight teams in each conference gave Utah a chance, one they weren't going to pass up. I was talking to Daryl, we was running out. You know, you run out the locker room to get in the like, crib line and uh, 
fans had uh, bags on their head. I think we had lost like 18 straight games. And uh, that's when Frank took over. And that's the game I think he told us just to just let it out, play hard, shoot the ball, don't worry about coming out. If, and it's another thing he said, if you get tired, raise your hand. And when you're ready to go back in, he'll put you in. That's when we start making a little climb on being a, you know, starting to be a better team. Frank, we're going to make the playoffs. He would always talk about getting better and getting better. One thing that he always talked about that made sense is say, hey, we got a four-game set. We got to get two out of four. And we have another four-game set. And he said, that's all right. All we got to get it was surprising. We got to get one out of four. And then he might come back and say, we got to get four out of five this set. So he was always, you know, it was like a mini season with uh, Frank Layton. That's what I always remember about him. He was always four-game set, five-game set. We got to get two out of four, three out of five, we'd be okay. The Jazz had the best record at the All-Star break. To end the year, Adrian Dantley led the league in scoring. Daryl Griffith led in threes. Mark Eaton in blocks. And Ricky Green in steals. John Drew of the Dominique trade averaged 17 off the bench. Frank was a coach of the year and led the Western Conference All-Stars. The Jazz won the Midwest Division, back when things like that mattered. They made the playoffs for the first time. But columnist Woody Page didn't think that was good enough. Yes, Woody from Around the Horn fame wrote a column in the Denver Post, previewing Jazz Nuggets in the first round. Page declared Utah to have no heart. Frank had no choice but to use that in the locker room. Thurl remembers well. It sank in that it got to us because obviously it, it got to him. And any motivation that Frank could find to get his guys to get to that next level, that next, to something. Because you know how it is in this league. All you need is one thing collectively to go out and play for. Um, you know, besides yourself, it, it's something that somebody writes or the doubt that somebody has. That's why all... When you, when you talk about the athletes on that team, most of them, it's how they made it there, right? People didn't believe that they could do it. And so Frank was so good at that. Frank was so good at the motivational part of it and us knowing that those weren't just words, those were challenges. I remember them saying that from Denver, you know, and, and he fed on that, you know, and got us pumped, you know, so... That kind of helped us get over the hump, you know, I think a little bit. Gave us a little bit more incentive to go out. And not that we didn't have it, but when somebody said you have no heart, you know, it's kind of like kind of gut-wrenching to you, you know what I mean? Like you have no, you know, you don't belong, you know what I mean? And we always had great battles with them. So that was that was a little uh, highlight on the on the. Uh, chalkboard for us. It galvanized the team and the city. Crowds filled the Salt Palace for a chance at postseason basketball. When we saw the crowd, we was kind of, you know, couldn't believe it because we only had a so-so crowd doing, we had the real Utah Jazz fans during the regular season. I mean, you know, we, we used to have parties and so forth. You would know they used to have this section that they were the real fans, you know, so they would they would be there every, every, every game, but, uh, 
I guess the difference was we made the playoffs, so that was exciting. So uh, that's why you saw the big crowds. It was a huge deal for the city and just as big a deal for the city as it was for us because they had, had never had the experience of of knowing, well, how do you approach a playoff? We've never been there, right? So how do you become that fan now? Now, we can, now we've got an opportunity to let it all out, right? So it was a wonderful thing to really observe how the city started to come together behind this team uh, because it had never happened before. And for me as a rookie, it was like, okay, now I get it. I want more of this. The Jazz won the series in five games behind back-to-back 30-plus efforts from AD. The playoffs is always different than the regular season. Uh, seem like when you drive to the rim, calls that you would normally get during the regular season, you don't get during the playoffs. It was a lot more physical. You know, the atmosphere is, is great among the fans, but uh, everybody's a little tight if they haven't gotten in the uh, playoffs. But once we got in the playoffs, uh, we did we did pretty good. It was always a tough fight with the Nuggets because we kind of played the same style of basketball. They run and gun, and they had two great scores, you know, and uh, English and uh, Vandeweghe, and they had great guards, Levy and Dunn. And we always had a battle with them, you know. That was one of those games, one of those series that you didn't know who was going to win, you know, but we happened to be the ones that come out victorious in that, in that series. They played Phoenix in the second round. After splitting the first two, the Suns took game three with an opportunity to do the same in four. Ricky Green had a chance to win it. Frank put in a nice play. It wasn't for me, but it was a nice play, and he had options on it. And one of the options, I'm curling around, and I was open. But when I got to the rim, another guy, of course, you know, they kind of rolled off the rim. I think if I would have made that shot, maybe things would have been a little different. But, you know, that, I say that's how the ball bounces. After that, after that playoff run, uh, my dad, uh, and again, everything was so, so much smaller, but he purchased um, rings for everybody for winning uh, the division. And on there was a little heart which I, I, I just had I saw in my drawer the other day. And um, the reason it had a little heart on it was uh, the, uh, uh, a Denver writer said that the, the Jazz, are, you know, have had a great year, but they, they don't have any heart. And then it, it was uh, uh, the, a song uh, uh, was associated, the old, old time song, uh, You Gotta Have Heart, was um, associated with the, with the team at that time. So. Yeah, it was, it was really, uh, it was great. We had really good players, and it just we just needed to figure out who we were and what our personality was on this team, because every team has to have an identity. And I think we developed an identity of, of toughness, an identity of, of just putting ourselves in a position to win every night against better opponents on paper. So if you do that enough, if you have the right people at the helm, then um, you know, you're going to put yourself in a position to win games that people never thought you would. So that year really is, I think, a pivotal year of what started the winning foundation of, of this franchise. The Suns won in six. But from that point on, the Jazz wouldn't miss the playoffs 
until 2004. On the next episode of The Note, why did the Jazz draft a skinny point guard from Gonzaga and an Adonis from Louisiana Tech? I'm J.P. Chunga, and this has been The Note, the history of the Utah Jazz, presented by Delta. Delta.